Our scripture this morning is two passages in Exodus 24 and in Matthew 26. So those who'd like to plan ahead, you can put your thumb in Matthew 26. But first we'll be reading from Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And then in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it all, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, I was deeply moved by that stanza in that song that if the, if the ocean was filled with ink and every reed was a quill and every man and woman on the earth did nothing but write the love of God. The ink would run out. The quills would break. We'd all get carpal tunnel. There wouldn't be enough scrolls. There'd be nowhere to hold all the scrolls. The whole universe cannot contain the love of God. How I rejoice in that truth, Father. And communion celebrates, lifts up, displays that truth everywhere that it is had. All of the greatness of the mysteries of the love of God are contained in these symbols, Lord. It just seems so unlikely that broken crackers and poured out Welch's grape juice could symbolize such great things, but they do. They do. And I pray for eyes to see this morning, Lord. Lord, for many of us, we have taken communion so many times that it can just become a rote thing that we do. And... I pray that it wouldn't be that this morning. I ask you to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, to give us hearts to open up and receive. As one of the psalmists said, open wide your mouth 
and receive the Lord your God. Open wide your mouth. Oh, give us mouths, Father, that can open wide this morning. Cause us to pant after the truth of the Word of God and the beauty and the mysteries of the love of God, all of which are contained in the, in the realities behind the symbols of communion. So please help us, Father. Help me as I speak now. Help me to be clear. Help me to be true to the Word of God. If anything that I say is not true, remove it from my mouth. Cause people not to hear it. And if I'm going to say anything that's true, I pray that you'd make it come out of my mouth in the way that accords with the beauty of it. Please, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Our God, our friend, our Redeemer, in Jesus' great and gracious name, I pray all these things. Amen. We're going to take a break from Ephesians this morning uh, to talk about the nature and the practice of communion at Glory of Christ because this morning we're going to be introducing some new practices that deserve an explanation, that need a, a biblical explanation. From this time forward, our attention is to celebrate communion just as we normally do in this service. But then during the second hour, our plan on every communion Sunday is to cancel Sunday school and to meet downstairs instead and partake of a full meal together in honor of communion. This meal is not simply a time for fellowship, as important as that is, but this meal is a vital and important and profound part of what it means to partake in communion together. And I'm giving the whole sermon to this this morning because I want to explain to you why that is so. It needs explanation, and I hope that as I do explain it, it will become clear to you. So I want to begin this morning by first exploring with you and and at some length exploring with you what the nature of communion is, And then I want to talk just a little bit about how the early church, for the first 300 years of the existence of the church, practiced communion almost universally around the world. And then I want to relate all of that to our practices here at Glory of Christ. And hopefully as I do that, it will shed light on why we're making the the changes or really the additions that we're making. So let me begin by addressing the question, what is communion? What is it in its essence? And if you will, please look with me again at Jesus' words in Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, and by the way, that word blessing in Greek is the word eucharisteo, and that's where we get the word eucharist from. It simply means to give thanks or to give blessing. So that's where the word comes from. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what I want to do to begin with this morning is focus our word on the, uh, focus our attention on the word is. That word is is a crucial word here. This is my body. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. That little word is has created a firestorm of debate in Christianity for 500 years. And out of that debate has come four points of view about what the nature of communion is. There's the Catholic view, the Lutheran view, the Reformed view, and the Protestant view. And I want to explain each of those to you briefly now. The Catholic view, as most of you probably know, is called transubstantiation. It's a hard word to get out of your mouth, but there it is. Transubstantiation. 
And in this, wor- in this view, the word is is taken completely literally. So Catholics believe that when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, that the bread, by way of a miracle, literally turned into the substance of the body of Christ. And that the substance of the wine, by way of a miracle, literally turned into the substance of the blood of Christ. It still looked like bread, still looked like wine, it still tasted like bread, it still tasted like wine, but somehow by a miracle it literally became the body and the blood of Christ. And they teach that wherever communion is had around the world at any time in a Catholic context, the same miracle happens, and thus the term transubstantiation. It's the transformation of the substance of the elements of communion. The Lutheran view, which of course was articulated by Martin Luther, is sometimes called consubstantiation. So the Catholic view is transubstantiation, and the Lutheran view is often called consubstantiation, although Luther and most Lutherans reject the term and prefer instead the term sacramental union. By the term sacramental union, Luther meant that when the elements of communion are taken, that the actual body and the actual blood of Christ come in with and under those elements so that they are literally present in communion. That was his term, in with and under the elements of communion. Now, if you can understand that, you're a lot smarter than I am. I've been thinking about it for a couple weeks and I don't get it. I don't. I really don't get what he's trying to get at. He says that the bread does not literally become the body. The cup does not literally become blood. But somehow, the literal body and blood of Christ come near to it, in with and under it. And I don't really get that, but that's their view. Here is a definition that I found on Wikipedia. And oddly enough, probably the best definition that I read as I did my research. It's just simple. In sacramental union, the consecrated bread of the Eucharist is united with the body of Christ and the consecrated wine of the Eucharist is united with the blood of Christ by virtue of Christ's original institution with the results that anyone eating and drinking these elements really do eat and drink the physical body and blood of Christ. So the Lutheran view is somehow philosophically distinguished from the Catholic view, at least in Lutherans' minds. It's not real clear in my mind, to be real honest about it. But they're very closely related, and both of them take the word is with utter reality, with utter literalness. This is my body, this is my blood. The Reformed view, which was first championed by John Calvin, as you may have expected, is most often called real presence. And in this view, the elements of communion neither literally become the body of Christ nor does the literal body of Christ come in with and under the elements. Rather, Calvin believed that Christ was and is and always will be especially present with His people when they take communion, but that the nature of His presence with them is spiritual, not physical. So in other words, he rejected the idea that in any way, shape, or form, the physical body of Christ manifested in the elements of communion, but he did believe that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is especially and actually present with His people when the elements of communion are taken. He once said that the Spirit truly unites things that are separated in space. So He unites the elements of communion and the presence of Christ, but the way He does it is by the Holy Spirit, not by transforming crackers and bread and 
wine and grape juice. He doesn't do that, but spiritually He really is here. The Holy Spirit makes something happen that does not normally happen when communion is taken. The way then, in Calvin's view, that a person partakes of the body and blood of Christ is simply by faith. It's not by literally eating the body and the blood of Christ. It is by faith in God through the Holy Spirit in what He did through His body and His blood, which are simply symbolized in these elements. So, in the Reformed view, the word is is metaphorical. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, He didn't mean it literally. He said, these things are signs. They're symbols of my body and blood. They're important, but they're still metaphorical. Finally, there is the Protestant view, which was championed by a guy that you may or may not heard of, may or may not have heard of. His name is Ulrich Zwingli. He was a Swiss guy in the 16th century, and his view is often called the the uh, mere the mere symbol view or the merely symbolic view. Most Baptists ascribe to this view. Most Protestants, in fact, ascribe to this view. In Zwingli's mind. The elements of communion merely symbolize the body and blood of Christ and in no way indicate the special presence of Christ with His people, whether through transformation or whether through the Holy Spirit. He rejected that. He said that the Holy Spirit is always present with His church through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and in communion. He doesn't come with us in, in a way that's different than he, he always normally is. These elements simply help us to remember what God has done in Christ and to embrace them afresh. So for Zwingli, these elements do not call the presence of Jesus into the body of the church any more than He normally is. They simply cause us to remember what He's done and to re-embrace what He's done and to offer Him thanks for all that He has done. Zwingli felt that the word is in Matthew 26, 20. 6 and 27 was purely metaphorical. Just like when Jesus said in John 10, 7, I am the door to the sheep. Now when Jesus said that, He didn't mean that He was a door, right? Jesus Christ didn't have hinges on Him and wood. He was not a door. He was like a door. And Zwingli said, this text is just like that. That is not His body. It's like His body. It symbolizes His body. That is not His blood. It symbolizes His blood, and therefore all we're doing when we take communion is remembering what God has done in Christ. And of course, of course He draws near to us and does great things, but not really in a way that's, that's different than what He normally does with us from day to day as believers. At Glory of Christ, we have not taken an official position on the nature of what communion is, but I suspect that probably in the next couple of months as Kevin and I work through some of the key ideas here, we probably will take an official position just for the sake of clarity. There will always be room for debate, I'm sure, but you can look forward to that in a couple of months. We'll publish that and let you know where we stand on things and why. But I can tell you this for now. The first two views of communion, the Catholic and the Lutheran views, are literally, are, are essentially what I call literal views. They take the word is totally literally. The second two views take the word is metaphorically. We reject the literal views and we will embrace some form of the metaphorical views. We do not believe that those crackers and that Welch's grape juice is going to somehow turn into the body and blood of Christ in any way, shape, or form. We reject the idea, and in just a minute, I'm going to explain why. We do believe that these elements are symbols of the body and blood of Christ, and that they will always remain symbols. Now, exactly what that means, 
we have to think about that a little bit and decide what we think that actually means. Whether we'll land more with Calvin or more with Zwingli, I'm not really sure at this point. But we can certainly say that we're going to land on the metaphorical side, and here's why. It is the actual broken body of Christ and the actual spilled blood of Christ that sealed the covenant that He was trying to seal. The symbols of the covenant could not seal the covenant. His body had to be broken. His blood had to be spilled. And when it was spilled, it was infinitely sufficient for what it was intended to do. So let me take a few minutes, probably about five minutes here. I want to ground what I just said because that is a crucially important idea. So go back with me to Exodus 24, if you will. And I want to read the text one more time. Exodus 24, starting in verse 1, going through verse 11. This is the inauguration of the first covenant. And therefore, it is very much akin to what Jesus was doing in Matthew 26. These are like twin passages. And so let's read with that in mind. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Now please listen very carefully at this point. Then he took the book of the covenant. So we're talking about the law. He took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I want to go back to this moment where Moses threw the blood on the people. And I want to ask the question, why did he do that? Doesn't that seem like a bit of a strange thing to do? I wonder how you would react if you were actually there and Moses took some blood out of a basin from bowls and threw it on you. But he did that. And I wonder why did he do that? Well, you don't need to turn here because it's going to go really fast. But please look up with the screen, at the screen with me and, and I'll read Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar. Why? To make atonement for your souls. And why is that? For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It is the blood itself that makes atonement by the life. The reason that the first covenant had to be sealed with blood and that that blood had to be sprinkled on the people, and I mean it, had to be sprinkled on the people, 
is because the only way to remit sins, to do away with sin, to forgive sin, is to spill blood at the command of God and to receive that blood by faith. It is blood that makes atonement for sins and only blood. And that blood has to be received by faith in God. So, getting back to Jesus. When He handed the cup to His disciples and said, quote, Drink of it, all of you. I take that to mean even Judas. Drink of it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. When He did that, He was essentially doing what Moses did when Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. Only this time, it was the blood of God and not the blood of bulls and goats. This time, Jesus Christ had them drink it, take it inside of themselves rather than just sprinkle it on them from the outside. The blood was absolutely necessary. Here's the point I'm trying to make them. Driving all this to this point. Until the body of Jesus was actually broken, and until the blood of Jesus was actually spilled, the covenant was not sealed. When He handed them the cup and the bread, He did not seal the covenant at that moment. He gave them the symbols of it. His body had to be broken. His blood had to be spilled. And at that moment, the covenant was sealed. If, if the covenant could have been sealed without the actual breaking of the body and the spilling of blood, He would have done it that way. Why would anybody in their right mind go through what Christ went through on the cross and through the flogging? But it had to happen this way. The blood had to be spilled because only blood remits sins when it is commanded by God to be spilled and received by faith. To teach that in any way the bread and the cup of communion actually become the body and blood of Christ is to teach that Christ's sacrifice on Calvary was insufficient and needs to be sacrificed over and over again. Did you know that this is the teaching of the Catholic Church? That every single time communion is offered anywhere around the world, that the body and the blood of Christ are sacrificed again and again and again and again every day in every country all throughout the world since the day Jesus actually died. Whenever communion is celebrated, the Catholics say this is an unbloody sacrifice and He is sacrificed again and again and again and again. That's heresy. That's heresy. And I don't use that word lightly. The reason I think that that is heresy is because it assumes that the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of Christ was insufficient on Calvary. And it was not insufficient on Calvary. It, it was spilled once for all, and it does not need to be spilled again. These things cannot become the actual body and blood of Christ because that would imply that His blood was insufficient and there is no way in the world that His blood can be considered insufficient. In fact, this is the main difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. I wonder if you have ever given any time to thinking. When you look at Moses and the law and the way that all that worked itself out, and then you look at Jesus and the grace of God on the cross and all the way all that works out, what's the difference between these two things? Well, many people have the false impression 
That under the Old Covenant, people had to live by the law with perfection or else be condemned by God. That they had to establish a righteousness of their own, and if they failed, they were automatically condemned by God with no means of forgiveness. And that's not true. There is some truth in it. Obviously, the law had to be followed. And anywhere that the law was broken, there was an eternal and significant rift between that person and God. They became an enemy of God. I will grant you that. But it's not true to say that under the first covenant, there was no means of actual forgiveness. Actual remission of sins. If you will read the first five books of the Bible carefully you will see a God that is amazingly gracious and has made a way for sins to be wiped away through the blood of goats and lambs and doves and pigeons and such like things. If you don't believe that, I don't know how you make sense of the Bible, especially the first five books in the book of Hebrews. So, if under the first covenant the remission of sins was actually possible through the shedding of blood, then what's the difference between the two covenants? Why did Christ have to come if there was a way in the first covenant that was made for us? And my answer is simply this. It is the infinite sufficiency of the blood of Christ as over against the insufficiency of the blood of lambs and goats and sheep and things like that. It's the blood of Christ and the value of the blood of Christ that is the difference between the covenants. Now that's a big thing that I just threw out there. I do not expect you just to swallow that and believe that. So let me take you to Hebrews 9. And I want to read almost the whole chapter because this addresses what I'm trying to say here. And I want you to see that my ideas aren't just coming out of nowhere. And that this is an important point. This is a crucial, crucial point. I want to Read Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, go all the way to verse 28. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's, that's key. Eternal redemption. Now listen very carefully to verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now if you read that carefully you will see that it assumes that they did sanctify for the purification of the flesh. If they did not, in fact, remit sins and purify souls who offered them in faith, then this this argument doesn't make any sense at all. So in the first covenant, remission of sins actually did happen through the spilling of the blood. But then look at verse 14. If that is true, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. You see, it had to be inaugurated with blood. That was a necessity. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with, with blood not His own. For then He, Christ, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all. It's a really key phrase. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, because He won't have to do that. His one-time sacrifice was sufficient to deal with sin. So when He returns, He will come to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So again I say, with that as evidence, the main difference, there are many minor differences, but the main difference between the first covenant and the new covenant is the insufficiency of blood of calves and bulls and the infinite sufficiency of the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of the essential truths of the first covenant are alive in the second, but they are fulfilled in a more perfect way. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. You remember when He said that? He did not come to abolish the first covenant, but what? He came to fulfill it. He was saying the first covenant was a sign. It was a symbol of things to come. And oh, if the people of Israel, even Jews to this day, could have eyes to see the beauty of what those things are symbolizing. But He was the real thing. He was the sufficient thing. The blood of God was spilled for our sins. And that blood is infinitely sufficient. Again, because of the infinite sufficiency of the blood of Christ, it is impossible that these elements in any way, shape, or form could become the actual body, the actual blood of Christ, because that makes a mockery of the sacrifice of Christ. The once-for-all nature of that sacrifice. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. There's no more need for sacrifice. And for that, we ought to give great glory to God. And so, at glory of Christ, we will always affirm that these elements are simply symbols of the great thing that Jesus Christ did on the cross at Calvary. 
Now, another question. What do these elements symbolize? What did Jesus Christ accomplish on the cross? And I get to answer that question in about five minutes. And volumes and volumes have been read or written about this and read about it, of course, too. So I don't have a lot of time to say this, but let me point you on your own time to Ephesians chapter 2. The three things that I'm going to point out out of many things I could point out, uh, I get from Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, we have a book out there on the book table that's free. And uh, there's two different names of it, so I cannot remember which which version of it is out there. But I think the version that's out there is called The Passion of the Christ. It was written by John Piper in response to Mel Gibson's movie because he felt that it did a great job of explaining how Christ died, but not why He died. And so that book has 50 reasons why Christ died. 50 things He accomplished on the cross. There are many things, infinite things that He did there. But let me express three of them. Number one from Ephesians 2. Jesus Christ through His blood, bridge the gap between Jews and Gentiles so that we could have peace with each other. This is a profoundly important thing that He did. We'll have to look into that some other time. Verses 13 through 15. Number two, the blood of Jesus Christ reconciled us both, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, to God. The main point of what Christ was doing on the cross was reconciling sinners to God the Father. Just like we talked about with thanksgiving. It's the same pattern. To God the Father, through God the Son, by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ's blood was a sufficient sacrifice so that God the Father now looks at all who believe in Him and says, Yes, you are righteous, you are holy, you are my beloved children in Christ. You once were my enemies, now you are my children. Oh, what a beautiful thing Christ did on the cross. And number three, and I want to camp out here for a little bit today. The blood of Christ on the cross has formed us who believe in Him into a people of God. I get this from Ephesians 2, 18-22 and many other places in the Bible. We were not called to be isolated Christians when we came into Christ. We were formed into a people of God by the blood of Christ on the cross. Nowhere in the Bible Do we read of a person being reconciled to God through Jesus in isolation? In other words, I mean, you might find someone who got saved kind of off by himself, like the eunuch and Philip, you might find that. But when he was saved, he he didn't just go about his life as though nothing had happened. He was saved into the body of Christ. To be a Christian is to become a part of the people of God. To come into Christ is to come into the body of Christ. Let me read just... A few texts to show you this. Romans 12, 4-5. For as in one body we have many members, many different parts of our body, but one body. And the members do not all have the same function, so though many, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So what are you as an individual Christian? You are individually members of one another. We are a body. We are a people. And Jesus Christ bought that for us on the cross. True, deep, lasting reconciliation with each other through the blood of Christ on the cross. 1 Corinthians 12, 12-13 For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 But you, those who believe in Christ, you are a chosen race. Not a chosen person. A chosen race. A collective people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people. Not a person for His own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To be a Christian is to be enfolded into the people of God. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian. To be in Christ is to be in His body. To be reconciled to God in Christ is to be reconciled to one another forever and ever and ever and ever. So beautiful, so powerful was the love of God in Christ Jesus through the cross that not only did we gain Christ and God and the Holy Spirit, but we gained each other. It's a crucial thing. And communion is meant in part to symbolize and celebrate that fact. I really want us to see that. When we take communion, we're supposed to think about what God did horizontally as well as vertically. And I'd point you to 1 Corinthians 10, 14-17 for that. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Brothers and sisters, when we celebrate communion, one of the things we celebrate is that though many, we are one in Christ. We are one in Him. And one of the most valuable things in our lives is that we have the body of Christ. And not just Christ abstractly. In a way, you know, I've always I want to see Jesus. And sometimes it's difficult to relate to a God you cannot see. But in a way, in giving us to each other, we see Christ in a sense. We are His body. We are His feet. We are His hands. We are His eyes. We are His ears. We are His word of comfort to one another. This is a profound and beautiful truth symbolized here in these elements for us. Now, I want to ask the question, how did the early church take all of that and, and partake of communion together? What did they do to celebrate and to further and to express their praise for the glories of the things that we just talked about? Well, I did a, a ton of reading over the last couple of weeks. And of course, all over the world in the first 300 years of the church, the practices varied in Europe, in Africa, in Asia. But what I found is that there were four main elements that were universally present in almost every celebration of communion around the world for the first 300 years of the church. Four things. The first thing is just what we do. Maybe not just how we do it, but just what we do. They had bread and they had a cup. Some form of bread, some form of cup. And they celebrated these things as the Lord's Supper to symbolize and celebrate their union with God in Christ. So they did the Lord's Supper. Pretty much just as we do with some minor, minor twists here and there. 
but it was to symbolize the union of the church and every individual in the church with God through Christ. Number two, every time they celebrated communion, they had what they called an agape meal. Agape is a Greek word that means love. So sometimes this was called a love feast, and in fact, in the Roman culture, there was a rumor spread that what the Christians were doing were getting together and having orgies because that's what they Romans thought when they heard love feasts. But that is not what the Christians were doing. They were celebrating their union together in Christ through that meal. The agape meal was a full meal, just like you'd go to have lunch or dinner. And the point of it was to celebrate and signify the union between the body. So this symbolizes our union with Christ. The meal symbolized our union with one another. Just as we were all eating of the same food, we all ate of the same food in Christ. Just as we were all sustained together by the physical food, it was a symbol that we are all sustained together by the food that is Jesus Christ. So, they did Lord's Supper. They did an agape meal. The third thing they did was they took the meal as a chance to repent of their sins, to get right with one another, to offer themselves freshly to God. In other words... They saw communion celebration as a sort of rededication service every time they had it. They re-offered themselves to God, not as though their sins had to be covered again from the beginning, but just as a way of saying, Father, I offer myself to you again. I don't know about you, but pretty much every week I fail, I sin, I fall, and every week I come before Christ and I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I don't need a new sacrifice Because what He did on the cross at Calvary was enough to cover my sins forever. And I praise Him for that. I really do. But every day I come before Christ and say, Oh, Jesus, apply that blood to this sinful heart. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. And they saw communion like that. It was a time for them to come before God and say, Father, please forgive my sins and transform this wicked heart of mine. So they did the Lord's Supper. They did the agape meal. They confessed their sins and got right with God and with each other. And then number four, they always took an offering for the poor. And this really touched me. They took an offering for others as a way of overflowing with thankfulness to God. As you have given to us freely, so we freely give to others. So the early church partook of the supper. They partook of an agape meal. They confessed their sins and got right with God and one another. And they took an offering for the poor. These four things characterized the celebration of communion in the church for the first 300 years of the history of the church. And the reason it faded away, I found in my research, was simply because of abuses that crept into the agape meal. That was the one part that really faded away. Obviously, the Lord's Supper has not faded away. The agape meal, by and large, faded away because there were all kinds of problems with rich people, poor people, talented people, not talented people, not treating one another as they should treat one another during the meal. All kinds of issues with favoritism and, and, and prejudice and things like that. And so the leadership of the church at that time felt it best to let that part of their practice go. And I have to tell you, I understand in part why they made their decision, but I think they made a really big mistake. I think it was a big mistake to let the practice of the agape meal go because it is such a profound symbol of our unity with one another in Christ. And we need something. 
month after month after month after month to remind us that not only are we in Christ, but we're in each other. Not only are we committed to Christ in an abstract way, but we are committed to one another out of reverence for Christ. We need this. And so, at glory of Christ, we want to go back to what our brothers and sisters used to do in the very early days of the church. We are not instituting a new thing here. We are going back and doing a very old thing that existed for at least 300 years in the life of the church. We want to partake in communion as a way of celebrating our union with Christ, and we want to partake in a meal as a way of celebrating our union with one another. And along the way, we want to confess our sins, and we want to take up an offering for the poor out of thankfulness to God. So, here's how we envision all this happening. I hinted at this a little bit in the beginning, but let me just repeat myself. Every first Sunday of the month, our communion Sunday, we plan to have communion just as normal in this room. But then, during the second hour, we will cancel Sunday school, and instead, we will partake in an agape meal together. In that meal, what I'll do is stand up at first, we'll probably sing a song or two, I'll give a very brief meditation, maybe about three minutes long, We'll eat together about 30 minutes into that meal. The plan is to open up a microphone and let anyone who wants to come up and share a scripture with the body, share a testimony with the body, perhaps even confess some sin to the body. Now, I don't expect there to be a rush to the microphone for that one. You know, anyone who wants to confess their sin publicly, come on and do it, but you never know, right? If you read the history of revival in the church, the first thing that always happens is that God pours out a spirit of repentance and confession on His people. And you never know what will happen. But the point is, the microphone will be open for anyone to come up and share something from their heart for the glory of Christ and the good of His people. And during that time, during the whole meal, we want to encourage people to get right with one another. If you have something against a brother, or if a brother or sister has something against you, it will be a great time to get it right. Let the blood of Christ have actual effect in your life by getting things right with one another. That's the point. Let us be at peace with one another even as we're at peace with Christ. And then at the end of the meal, the plan is to take an offering for the poor of cash, of clothing, and of non-perishable foods. And here's what we plan to do with it. The cash will go into a benevolence fund. And we'll take that cash and give it to anyone inside the body who has a need. You can't pay a bill? Please call us. We'll help you. You can't get your car fixed? Call us. We'll help you. You know someone outside the church who needs help? Call us. If we have the cash, we will help you. The plan for the food and the clothing is to take it to care here in Elk River. Unless someone has a better idea, that's what we're going to do. So this morning, obviously, not a great morning for that to happen since you're just being notified to bring food and clothing to church. But on Communion Sunday, think this way. If you want to Donate food, donate clothing, donate money to give away outside this body. Please prepare yourself and please bring that. I read a story this week of Augustine who talked about seeing his mother when he was just a little guy. He said Sunday after Sunday, communion after communion, he would see her wheel an entire cart full of food and clothing and stuff to give away to people, and she brought that to church and offered it up at communion time. And I just thought that was so awesome. What a beautiful way to express our love to God by overflowing in love to other people. Amen? This meal is a big deal, brothers and sisters. This is not just a fellowship time. And so I want to urge you on communion Sundays to stay for the whole thing. I want to urge you not to bug out after church, but to stay for the whole meal. I know sometimes you have to go, and we bless you in that. We are not a legalistic church. We do not motivate by guilt or coercion. I hate that kind of thing. But what I just want to say to you is this is a valuable thing. 
This is a really important and valuable thing. And Kevin and I want us all to make room in our lives for what is truly valuable. Celebrating union with the body of Christ is more valuable than sports. It's more valuable than going to the lake. It's more valuable than doing chores at home. It's more valuable than just about anything. I love tennis. I love football. There's two big things going on today. I couldn't care less about them. I would much rather be here with you in the body of Christ, celebrating our union with Christ and the great and eternal things that He has done. All these other things will fade away. Christ will not fade away. So if you have to leave, the Lord bless you. Please don't feel guilty. But I want to urge you on Communion Sundays to stay because this is a valuable and important thing. In this way, we hope to incorporate all four elements of the celebration of communion that our ancestors did. We hope to glorify the name of our Father more so than we do now. We hope to build up His church, and we hope to increase in our common joy over what Jesus Christ did on that cross. So please pray for us and participate in this. With that, I'd like to ask you, brothers, if you'll come now, and we're going to right now partake in communion here together, after which... The plan is to clean this room up and then we'll go downstairs and enjoy the meal with one another. Father, who can imagine the infinite beauty and meaning in the symbols that we just partook of? Who can imagine the love of the Father pouring upon us through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit? Who can imagine what it means to be reconciled to God and pure with Him, clean with Him, righteous before Him. Who can imagine what it means to be reconciled with the people of God from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. Oh, Father, there are people all over this world fighting and killing one another because of their differences. And yet in Christ, You have reconciled us all. And so we are one with believers from Africa, Asia, Europe, the United States, Mexico, Canada, wherever there are human beings that believe in Christ, we are one with them in Christ. Who can imagine the beauty and the truth of these things? Oh, how we thank you for these symbols of remembrance and how we pray that you would cause them to land deeply in our souls today. Cause us to rejoice in you. And even as we sing our closing song now and then are dismissed to the agape meal, I pray that we would continue thinking about and meditating upon and rejoicing in these things. In the great name of Jesus and for His glory, I pray. Amen.